لله وكفى وسلام على عباده الذين اصطفى أما بعد فأعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والذين جاهدوا فينا لنهدينهم سبلنا صدق الله العظيم سبحان ربك رب العزة عما يصفون وسلام على المرسلين والحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى آل سيدنا محمد وبارك وسلم اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى آل سيدنا محمد وبارك وسلم اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى آل سيدنا محمد وبارك وسلم We praise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as he is that being that is worthy of being praised We thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for allowing us to be in the ummah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and for having guided us and we send peace and blessings upon Rasulullah and upon his family and his wives and his progeny and his companions and all those that followed them in their ways. Jazakumullah <coughs> khairan everybody for coming to the Mihrab Foundation Sacred Knowledge class. This week inshallah we'll go on to Al-Muhaymin. Inshallah we'll try to do two names today. I wanted to do Muhaymin last week but we weren't able to. So Al-Muhaymin, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has said in the Qur'an, وَأَنزَلْنَا إِلَيْكَ الْكِتَابَ بِالْحَقِّ مُصَدِّقًا لِمَا بَيْنَ يَدَيْهِ مِنَ الْكِتَابِ وَمُهَيْمِنًا عَلَيْهِ He said that we have revealed to you the book with truth. We have revealed to you the book of truth, affirming what came before it. Meaning affirming those books that came from before. وَمُهَيْمِنًا عَلَيْهِ As a guardian over it. So muhaymin means guardian. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has used Muhammad in this context to tell us that the Qur'an is affirming the books of the past. Obviously the books of the past, many of them uh, uh, have been changed or many parts of them have been changed, but the general message was the same. Or even if it was changed, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is speaking about the uh, before they were changed, prior to the books of the past being changed. So Muhammad is guardian. Now Imam Ghazali rahimullah, he mentions speaking about Muhaymin, that what does it mean in terms of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? He says, first to understand what a guardian is. He says, a guardian comprises of three qualities. One is that it has to have knowledge about a particular thing. So to be considered Muhaymin or to be considered a guardian, you have to have knowledge about a particular thing. Number two, you have to have the complete ability to secure the interests of that thing. Meaning you have to know the intricacies of this thing you are claiming guardianship of. And second, you have to have the ability to bring benefit and whatever things are going to bring safety and security to this thing that you are a guardian over. And number three is persistence in obtaining those interests. So consistency and persistency in trying to uh, attain those interests that provide safety and security. This is why when we have like a waiver form for, for people under 18. And we say a parent or guardian has to sign it. What does that mean? That the parent or the guardian, we kind of link the two together, right? If you're a parent, you should be the guardian, you know? A parent or guardian is, son, is somebody that they know their child, so they know what their child can handle. They know what will benefit them, what will harm them. They know what burden they're able to carry. And then they, the parent provides the ability, they have the ability to bring that safety and security, bring those uh, those interests to them. So, uh, and thirdly, that they are persistent in obtaining those interests. So, for example, we know that a child, we know that our child, maybe he can't handle a certain uh, activity, right, because it's too strenuous on them. 
and so they might not sign a permission form because they know that no, my, my child won't be able to handle it. So they know the child and then they also know what, harm, what will harm or benefit that child also, right? Now what we can abstract from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala being muhaymin is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, because our knowledge first of all of, of how well we know something or the benefit or harm that will come to you know, our child or whatever our interest might be is limited. Right? We don't have a complete knowledge. Sometimes we think something's going to harm us, but it brings benefit or there's no harm. Sometimes we think something will benefit and it's the opposite. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, because He created us, He knows us intricately. Every and absolute aspect of us, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows it. And then obviously He can, He knows what will bring us harm and He knows what will bring us benefit. So what, what is the link here between Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala being Muhammad and us? We understand that the Sharia is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is something we have to understand, in, especially in this day and age. Because many people want to change, or, change rulings. Because, oh, it doesn't fit us anymore. Or the times have changed. And although certain rulings, we might be able to change them. You know? Uh, because they might not be definitive rulings. Right? They might be something that came as a deduction or a conclusion of something else. So, for example, uh, we talk about the issue of homosexuality. There's a lot of pressure, there's been a lot of pressure on churches to allow homosexuality, right? Now, without getting into the discussion of somebody who has these feelings and whether it's natural or not, aside from those things, because that's not what the, the, the discussion is about, the church has a lot of pressure to change that. And there are many churches that have started saying, well, okay, yeah, maybe homosexuality was allowed, maybe it was something else that was forbidden in the books. And so there's pressure now on Muslims, because Muslims are generally holding strong to this, right? That no homosexuality is not permissible. Now, if we stand up today and say, okay, yeah, times have changed. There's so many people that are homosexuals. We have to be inclusive. Okay, homosexuality is permissible. Say we were to say this, right? I'm not saying it is. But say we were to uh, uh, change this ruling. It doesn't actually change the ruling, right? I can stand up and say, Salah, for example. No, Salah is no, no more uh, necessary. But has the hukum actually changed? Because who gave us these rulings? They're coming from the Qur'an. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala himself, he is the shari'ah, right? He is the one who gave us the rulings. He made the rulings. So by me changing it today amongst people or my opinion of it, won't change the fact that it still holds the same weight with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? I'm not trying to give a ruling. All we're doing is conveying the message of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to the people. So the sharia is also muhaymin for us. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is muhaymin and He has given us the sharia. He has given us the sharia to be a guide for us so that we know how to understand and how to live our life. Right? It gives us a full understanding. That's what makes Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala truly muhaymin because He has given us the guidance of the sharia and He has given us the guidance of the sunnah of Rasulullah sallallahu so that we know how to live our life, right? how to practice. Then Imam Ghazali rahimullah, he goes in and he says that Muhaymin manifests himself, meaning Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala manifests himself as Muhaymin in the, uh, amongst his creation. And he says that we take a look at the human body, for example. The human body has so many intricate parts to it, right? You have the respiratory system, you have all different organs, the respiratory system, the lungs, you have the cardiovascular system, the digestive system, you have the brain, then we have reasoning, aql, right? Intellect. What is the intellect? It's not a part of the body. Right? I don't know, somebody with a science background, like, just tell me otherwise, right? It, I don't think they say the, the aql is something tangible. It's like an offshoot of the brain, but it's nothing we can grab or look at, right? The mind. 
the aql, the intellect. You kind of have it or you don't. It can be developed. So all of these different things are there, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created them. However, to manage one of them, say you have a surgery, to manage one of them, it takes a whole team of doctors and physicians. A few weeks ago, I don't know if people heard, there was a brother, I think he was part of the UW's MSA a few years ago. But um, he, he, he's like 25 years old, and he has severe cancer. Right? Poor guy actually got cancer like a few months after he got married. But he has severe cancer. They had to cut him open, and they had to take out, remove a lung. I think it was a lung or a kidney or something like that they had to remove. They had to leave him open for, I think he, st- he stayed open for like two weeks almost because they couldn't close him. There was too much swelling and these types of things. When they cut him open, so much of his body had been affected by the cancer that they had a cardiovascular team, they had a respiratory team. They had all these physicians who were experts. They had a whole team of doctors. Like it's the most number, I think it was Virginia Mason Hospital. It was the most number of doctors that have been together for one single surgery in like, I don't know, 100 years or something like that, right? At least in Virginia Mason or whatever, you know? So a whole team of doctors was there for, for these different, uh, for this one surgery because it involved so many different aspects of the body. So then Imam Ghazali says, what about that being who harmoniously and suddenly brings all of these things together and allows them to function? Why are all these physicians there? So that when they cut them open, they can they know how to sustain each different organ, right? What's going to affect the lungs and make the lungs shut down? What's going to make the kidneys shut down? And despite all these, this whole team being there, the person's digestive system actually shut down. So now he's stitched up, they're still not giving him food because his digestive system went to sleep. So now what about that being that brings them all together? I mean like, you know, Alhamdulillah subhanahu wa ta'ala just blessed my wife and I with a child. When you watch the beginning of the child's inception until the time it's born, it's the most amazing thing in the world, right? You can look at the galaxies and stuff, and maybe it's something similar, but we don't see the galaxies coming together, right? But we watch, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, when Surah Abasa, min ayyi shayin khalaqa, what is it? Min ayyi shayin khalaqa, min, uh, min nutufatin khalaqahu faqaddara, right? That from what thing did Allah ta'ala create you? He created you from a single drop of sperm, and then He fashioned you and perfected you, right? And shaped you. From a single drop, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala creates this child and He creates us. It's amazing. And then towards the end when the child is actually moving in the womb of the mother, it's amazing, right? It's like, it's astonishing how from nothingness Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brings insan out, right? And then look at, look at a giraffe, for example. Does anyone know how, to, how a giraffe is born? I went on a safari in South Africa, so we learned this, <laughs> right? A giraffe is born and when it comes out of the mother, it's born head down. And it has to make a hard impact on the ground. So you don't try to cushion the giraffe's fall. It has to drop after, from its birth and impact the ground head on. Because its organs are not like on. Its organs are not working when it's born. It has to impact the ground and the impact of the ground turns everything on. Amazing, right? At a moment, just a moment's notice, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brings this giraffe into existence. You bring, it's already there, but it's just like... It's what, it doesn't have life in it or something? I don't know, its organs aren't working. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He is watching guard over all of these things, our organs, and then the whole rest of the universe. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is truly muhaymin, because He is guardian over it. So now what's the counsel? Anybody have any idea? What, what could Imam Ghazali rahimullah possibly say, say out of our share for being a guardian? Anyone have an idea? Any guesses? Yeah. Parenthood. There's, there's parenthood. But he goes a little bit deeper than that. We kind of talked about it before, probably like every other name. <laughs> so Imam Ghazali, we'll, just, we'll read his counsel. 
because it's short. He says, any guesses? No? Guarding your heart. Guarding your heart. Yeah. <laughs> Being a guardian over your heart. It's like every other name, he comes back to this concept, right? So he says, every servant who watches over his heart until he supervises its depths and its secrets and also takes possession of reforming his inner states and attributes and undertakes to protect it continuously according to the requirements of his reform will then be guardian in relation to his heart. And if he extends his supervision and possession to undertaking to keep some servants of Allah on the right way after taking cognizance of their inner states and secrets by the way of clairvoyance or inference from their behavior, then his share in this meaning will be even more abundant and his portion greater. So he says, we can take a share of Muhammad by being a guardian over our hearts. Because look, we said that what? There's three qualities to be Muhammad. Knowledge about a particular thing, the ability to secure the interests, and persistence in obtaining those interests. Now, we usually we think about it in terms of a worldly sense, right? Okay, but a parent could be our guardian, but what if, man, you're just, you hit, you know, a road of bad luck, a few bumps, and you are out of a job, out of a home, and now you can't really secure the interests of your child, right? There's kind of a deficiency now, like, to your guardianship based on this definition, right? So we can't always control what's around us, what's on the outside, but we can strive for the inward, right? We can strive for the inward. And this is why one is the rectification of our inner state, but then also guarding our inner state. And there's a difference. We try to rectify our inner state, but then also to guard it from outside, from those things that bring it harm on the outside, those things that negatively impact our heart and our soul, right? Because Imam Ghazali is constantly talking about the soul versus the nafs. And what did we mention a few names ago? That the heart is the battleground. So guarding our heart, and then we can take a share in being a muhaymin. And he says that those, your share will be greater and more abundant when through your knowledge and through figuring out the inner state of an individual, you are able to bring them into a rectified state. This doesn't mean we go around and we judge everyone inwardly. Right? But this is talking about those people who have a mastery over the science of tazkiyatun nafs, over purification of the heart, purification of the soul. That they, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blesses them and they're able to partially through their experience, but also right, partially through, there's a hadith that says when, uh, if somebody makes, uh, there's, a, there's a hadith near, uh, talking about the secret knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is not like secret knowledge like, oh, you know, I, whatever, like had a dream or I met Khidr or something like that. And so, you know, I, uh, now I have the secret knowledge and nobody knows it. Does anybody know that whole idea that Khidr is still alive? Yeah? No? Okay. There's some opinions, right? There's some opinions that say Khidr is still alive. However, there's uh, many opinions that say, no, he's not, right? So anyway, we won't get into that. But right, some people come, like we talked about the kind of the weird Sufis last week, right? People come and they're like, oh, no, I don't need to pray anymore. I got revelation from Allah or whatever it is, right? We're not talking about that. The ulama say that if you want this access to this like secret knowledge, right, and you want to be able to understand things at a deeper level, you simply have to act on what you know. We learn so much about the deen, so much we learn, but we fail to act, right? Sometimes people stand up for Jummah Khutbah and they say, you know, recite Surah Kahf on Fridays. And people will say, oh, you know, my whole life I've been hearing the whole thing, the, this, the same thing. Won't these, won't these shiuch, these mulvis, won't they just speak about something different? And then when you ask them, have you ever, do you, are you consistent in reciting Surah Kaf every Friday? No. Okay, well, then it seems like you need to hear it again, right? Like, we know and we learn, but we don't act. So, being able to understand something at a deeper level 
It's simply it comes by us acting on the knowledge that we learn. <clears throat> and we won't go off in too much of a tangent, inshallah. Uh, <clears throat> so we can strive to become the guardians of the inward. Then Imam Ghazali, rahimullah, he, does anybody have any questions about that? Muhammad, we'll move on to Aziz. No? Okay, so the next name Allah, um, Imam Ghazali, rahimullah, mentions is Al-Aziz. Aziz is the eminent one. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَلَهُ الْكِبْرِيَاءُ فِي السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ وَهُوَ الْعَزِيزُ الْحَكِيمُ That to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala belongs uh, greatness, right? Kibriya. What's a better translation for Kibriya? Question? Yeah, what, what does eminent uh, mean? Huh? Eminent. 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 Yeah, eminent yeah. is like, um, how can somebody define eminent? It's like somebody who's very prominent. Yeah, just strong. Yeah, that's good. Dictionary. A person famous and respected within a particular sphere or profession. Okay, <laughs> that doesn't really help us. Um, okay, well, we'll understand it. Basically, it's one. Imam Zali actually defines it. He says it's one who is. Um, no, he gives a he gives a definition for it, a definition for it in terms of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. So he says, first of all, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala says that to him, to Allah belongs kibriya. To him belongs this greatness, right? Um, regarding the heavens and the earth, wa huwa al hakim, and he is aziz. He is eminent or mighty, you can say, and he is all wise, right? So aziz comes from the root word of is, and is is derived from power, strength. Victory, elevation, non-submission. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is Aziz. And all of these things comprise to make, to, to understand what Aziz means for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The verb means, azza right, yu'izzu uh, means uh, to strengthen. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in uh, Surah, Surah Yasin, فَعَزَّزْنَا بِثَالِثِ right, That He sent two messengers to a people and they gave the message of Allah and they, people denied them. So then, فَعَزَّزْ نَابِ ثَالِثِ And so we sent them and we, we strengthened them with a third. So the verb means to strengthen. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Qur'an, وَلِلَّهِ الْعِزَّةُ وَلِرَسُولِهِ وَلِلْمُؤْمِنِينَ That indeed to Allah belongs izza, honor and might, and to His messenger and to the believers. This tells us what? The Qur'an is definitive, right? It always applies. So what does this mean? The Muslims, like nowadays, we have... You know, it's kind of like everyone's, you know, their, their, their feet are on our necks. Do, do we no longer have izza? Izza lies with iman, right? Izza lies with our iman. And this izza, sometimes it will not be manifest to us in this dunya, it will become manifest to us in the akhirah, right? Or if you, like somebody, you know, there's an atheist once, he asked me, he said, what if you're wrong, right? You're saying that there's a God and there's a hereafter. What if you're wrong? So I said, well, at least I'll have lived a moral life, Right? So Iman also will give us, if we follow Iman and everything we're supposed to do, at least we'll still have a moral life, right? Because we won't have engaged in, you know, drinking alcohol and fornicating. We'll have been upright and good to people. We'll be pleasant people to be around. So even if we were wrong, right? And I'm not saying what if we're wrong. Like we have yaqeen that we are correct. But even if we were wrong, we'll still have a moral life. I said, well, how do you know? What are you going to do if you're wrong? And he said, well, you know, if... Just like when I'm in the road and something comes in my way, I have to act. Well, on, if there's a day of judgment, then I'll figure it out then. SubhanAllah. Like, I mean, this is why we're told day of judgment is too late, you know. But 
and this person, okay, he's generally he's a moral person, right? I know I know this individual to be a moral person. He's much older, right? He's like in his seventies or something. But um, somebody asked once we were at an interfaith, I was at an interfaith talk, and somebody asked that, do you feel that somebody who does not have religion cannot be moral? And that's not necessarily the case, right? You can live a moral life, generally, right? Generally, you could live a moral life, but it's kind of up in the air, right? The, the minister that was there, he actually took a stronger, like he actually said, he's like, you could, but you're shattered if you don't have, a, <laughs> if you don't have religion, right, in your morals. The thing is, like, it's kind of, you're up, it's up in the air, right? What do you deem to be fit? What do you deem to be moral? Now, marijuana is legal in Washington State. So is it moral now? It's not moral, right? How is it moral? It wasn't moral yesterday because it was, it was outlawed, but now it's moral because it's, it, it's, it's allowed. Alcohol, in the 1930s, America put a ban on alcohol, right? And then they lifted the ban because there was too much trafficking and all that going on, right? So it, we can't deem, to be, deem, to be, deem something to be moral based on what society says. It's changing always, right, here and there. That's why it's kind of up in the air. If you don't have religion, you, know, you might be able to prove some logical point as to why one thing might be moral over another. But religion gives us that. Why? Going back to Muhammad, because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He knows what's good for us. He's given us the guidelines of the Prophet through his sunnah and through the explanation and the practices of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum that we, uh, uh, that, that tells us what is a moral life. And this is what, what gives us izzah. Our iman gives us our izzah. And then Imam Ghazali rahimullah, he says that Aziz is one who is unique in its scarcity. So he says basically three things, right? To be considered Aziz. Just like Muhammad had three qualities. He says, Aziz has also three qualities, that it is one who is unique in its scarcity, yet there's intense need for it, and access to it proves difficult. So all of these things have to be combined to be considered Aziz. Right? What are they? Scarcity in them, meaning they're unique. Right? There's a rarity in this thing. And there has to be intense need for it, and then access to it proven difficult. So only when these three things are combined can someone be considered Aziz. Then he says that there's many things whose existence is rare, right? The first one, rarity. There's many things that are rare in existence, but they're of very little importance, right? There's a lot of those things, right? Like, I mean, like, you know, I'm one of a kind, but I'm not really a significant person, right? <laughs> right? Every person is unique, but how, how important is every single one of our um, existences? We're not really significant to the world as individuals, necessarily, right? Um, and even different minerals and these types of things, they might be more scarce to come by them, but they might not be of that much benefit. Then also he says that there's also things whose significance is great, and there's, uh, has, there's a lot, but there's a lot of abundance, right? There's a lot of abundance in it. So it's not, uh, there's a lot of significance, but we find it very easily. So access to it is not difficult. And he gives the example of the earth and the sun. The earth, it's one of a kind, right? Think about our solar system. There isn't, we haven't found another planet in our solar system to be like it. And Allahu Alam, outside of our galaxy and our solar system, what else is like it? So it's one of a kind. And the sun is also one of a kind, right? However, access to it is very easy. The sun comes up every single day. The earth is all around us. We can uh, go into the earth and take out whatever minerals we need or want, right? The sun even, we can observe it, right? We can learn the intricacies of it. We can learn the intricacies of it also. However, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, this is not the case for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Imam Ghazali, he says that, furthermore, there is perfection in all of these three things. So rareness, 
regarding Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, there's perfection in all of these things. It says rareness, there's perfection in that because there is nothing more rare than one. You can't have anything. If there's zero, then it just doesn't exist. It's not even rare at that point. It's not in existence. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is one. So He has reached perfection in rarity. There's perfection in His in intensity and need of Allah Ta'ala because everything needs Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And difficulty of access, how is it difficult? How is there a difficulty of access to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Especially regarding, we said, the sun. Like we kind of, we can say, well, there's difficulty in accessing the sun. But Imam Ghazali defines it as the sun, we can understand it. So there's difficulty in understanding the essence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? We really can't understand the essence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's impossible. Right? He is so far transcendent and beyond us. And then also Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, وَالَّذِينَ جَاهَدُوا فِينَا لَنَهْدِيَنَّهُمْ سُبُلَنَا He says that verily those who strive, jahadu, strive in the way of Allah, right? and strive in our way, then definitely we will guide them. He doesn't say those that give a little bit of effort, we're going to guide them. He says those who strive in our way. We strive and make a lot of effort. Not just we pray one day and then we leave it for like, you know, a month, right? Or we go for, for Salatul Eid and that's it and we give no concern to our Iman. No, we have to strive. If we hope to be guided, then we have to strive in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? But then now what? There's also that hadith. What, what, what hadith? Sounds contrary to this concept. That when Allah Ta'ala, if you go to Allah Ta'ala walking, then He comes running. You reach out to Him with a hand span, He comes to you in arm span, right? What, that seems like it's kind of contradictory, right? Either this is understood after you make, you strive in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Or, right, or you put a little bit of effort and then Allah Ta'ala opens the way for you to come nearer to Him, but then you have to strive. We have to strive in our iman, right? The Prophet ﷺ, look at the, the most difficult years for him was, was the first years of his prophethood. Those first 13 years in Makkah Mukarramah, those were the most difficult on him and the companions. Because right? well, once they got to Medina Munawwara, it was a little bit easier. Now they were governing, they had people, they were, more and more people were coming into the fold of Islam. They weren't really being persecuted, they were fighting a war, but when they were home, they, they knew they were safe. Right? It, was, it would take how long for the people of Makkah to travel to Medina Munawwara, the Quraysh, to get there and bring them harm. So the most difficult time was in the time of Makkah. And so they had to strive in the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, strive in His way, and then Allah ta'ala opened things up for them. When did Allah ta'ala open things up for them? Prophet was given wahi, and how many years later was, were things opened for them? Fatu Makkah, when did that happen? The conquering of Makkah, that happened in what year, Hijri? It happened in eight. Eight years after the Prophet arrived in Medina Munawwara. That's what, 21 years after he was given revelation, was there finally an opening. And we want, like, you know, that we pray one, night, one day, we get up for Fajr on time, or we go to the Majjad, or maybe we make the Hajjad one day, and like, you know, we expect everything to be made easy for us. Allah Ta'ala will definitely be there, but we can't expect to attain proximity with Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala without striving in the, in the path of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. We have to, it has to be there. Right, it has to be there. I don't want to put anyone off thinking that, oh man, like there's no hope for me. No, Allah Ta'ala opens doors, right? He opens the doors. When He sees you coming, He opens the doors. But you have to understand that that striving is still going to be there. That's why people who go and study the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you find like the first year of classes, you have like 70, 80, 90, 100 people, 120 people. And by the end, you have 10 or 15. Six years later, you have 10 or 15. Because people just drop off. It's difficult, right? It's difficult. It's a difficult path to go in the it's a difficult way to go in the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Allah Ta'ala asks us to strive in his way. Right? And then but then he says, 
that when you strive, then that opening will be there. And he he's, puts emphasis on it, that we will definitely guide you. If you strive, definitely we're going to guide you. Don't, don't be worried that you won't be guided. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will definitely and most certainly guide you. Right? What is it? وَالَّذِينَ جَاهَدُوا فِينَا لَنَهْدِيَنَّهُمْ This is like, not even emphasis. It's like super emphatic emphasis that he's giving, that I will definitely guide you to, to my way. Then Imam Ghazali, rahimullah, he gives his, his counsel. And he says that one is Aziz among people when others have need of him in matters most important to them, like the next life and the, extern, and the, and the eternal happiness. So that's how we can take a share of Aziz. And the eminence is shared of the, is shared by the prophets. And they were the utmost in being Aziz. They were the utmost in being Aziz. Why? Why were the prophets the utmost in being Aziz? Anyone? Yeah. Because the people needed them uh, the most for uh, knowledge of the hereafter. Exactly, right? The people needed them the most, right? They needed them the most. And they were unique. Right? Even when there were multiple prophets, they were unique. Obviously, nobody can attain the uniqueness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but they were unique. Right? There's one narration that Banu Israel, they killed 70 prophets in one day. Right? So imagine that at least, there were at least 70 alive at that one time in that one place. Right? But they were still unique because there was a whole nation and the rest of the world that didn't have prophets. Right? So they were still unique. Right? And then they were guided by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and then they were able to guide others as well. And then he says, Eminence is shared of the prophets. Uh, the eminence of the prophets is the utmost because of our need for them. And then it is followed by the distinguished in their time from those who are close to their level. Like who? Like the Khulafa, right? The Khulafa Rashidin, Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman, Ali, radiallahu anhu. Allah Ta'ala be pleased with them all. And all of the companions, but particularly them, right? Those that were the closest to the prophets. They were the most in being Aziz. What happened when the Prophet ﷺ passed away? Abu Bakr had to take hold of the entire ummah. Everyone was in like, they were in a shattered state. Right? Ali and Uthman, what happened to them? One of them became mute. He was so much in shock right, for a time that the Prophet had passed away. The other one went into a mode of paralysis. Umar, he walked around, he said, no, he's not dead and I'm cutting off anyone's head who says he's dead. He's just gone up to the mountains like Musa did for 40 days and he'll be back. They were completely like, they were, they were in this state of, what is the word? Like they were kind of, you don't want to say out of their mind, but they had, they were in shock, right? They were in complete shock. What happened? Abu Bakr, he comes, because he was not in Medina Munawwara when the Prophet passed away. He comes riding back into Medina Munawwara and he sees the state of people. And he goes to the Prophet and he goes into his house and he kisses the Prophet on the forehead and he says that you were beautiful in life and you were beautiful in death. And then he goes out to the people and he gathers them at the masjid. And he narrates, he recites the verse of Quran wherein Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells the Muslims that the Prophet, uh, the other, the Prophet is a man and those before him passed away and he will also pass away. And then everyone starts coming back to there. The shock starts leaving them a little bit. Right? And they said, Umar radiallahu anhu said he's, that we knew this verse but it's as though we heard it for the first time. And then Abu Bakr he stands up and he says that whoever worshipped Muhammad وسلم, know that he is dead. And whoever worships Allah know that he lives forever. He was the closest to the Prophet His heart must have been the most broken out of anybody. But Allah Ta'ala gave him that strength. Right? Just like he says, فَعَزَّزْنَا He gave that strength to Abu Bakr And Imam Ghazali says that the most distinguished in their azizness 
are those that were close to the prophets. This is Abu Bakr He took hold of them, right? And then when all the companions were shocked, because what happened? Just before the Prophet passed away, he commissioned an army to go out against the Romans. And they were supposed to have left, but they felt the Prophet might pass away. And so they were camped outside of Medina Munawwara. And they didn't leave. Then the Prophet passed away, they all came back in. Abu Bakr becomes the Khalifa, and then he says, go out. And Umar comes and he says, look, their hearts are broken. They don't know, how can you expect them to go and fight? And Abu Bakr he says, how do you expect me to not carry out the last command of the Prophet Go. And he forces them out. They walked into Sham, right, which was governed by the Romans. Without a fight, the Romans gave it up. The Caesar looked at them and was like, man, these people are crazy because their Prophet just died and they're here to fight a war. <laughs> he gave it up without even a fight. He gave up that land. And all the other tribes, the Mushrikeen tribes around Arabia, they said, okay, now their leader is dead. This is our time to strike them. But when they saw the army coming out, they also said, these people are something else. If Abu Bakr had not been that individual, then what would have happened? Right? They probably would have, I mean, what would have happened to the Ummah? So his share with the Prophet was the utmost. And he was the closest to attaining Aziz-ness, if we call it that. Right, amongst all the companions. And then obviously the others were also, right? The others were also. Not that the others weren't. Of course, Omar, Abu, uh, Uthman, Ali, Radiranum, and the rest of the Sahaba also had it, but there were varying degrees of it. And then he says that, then after them are the heirs of the Anbiya amongst the ulama. So there's a hadith, the Prophet saw somewhere, and he says, Inna al-ulama warathatul anbiya. That indeed the scholars of the religion are the inheritors of the Anbiya. That they do not leave any dirham or dinars. They do not leave wealth. But the scholars are the inheritors. But now Imam Ghazali doesn't just say scholars. He says the heirs amongst the ulama. There was one, one sheikh that I met when I was in Zambia. And he spoke about this a little bit. And he said that, you know, when, uh, you know we've heard the hadith that uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will not take knowledge away from the people. But he will take the people of knowledge away. Right? So knowledge will not go away by our, us opening the books and everything's erased. But by the people who have knowledge, they will die. Or like maybe they'll be uh, deported, right? <laughs> right? But they will go, the people of knowledge will go away. So the Sheikh said that, I think that this hadith impl- implies also regarding those ulama who understand the heart and are able to enliven in the heart. We have scholars around us, but they don't do anything for our hearts. Right? And sometimes it's not their fault. Actually, most of the time it's our fault. We have a block on our heart. Right? But he says, those, heirs amongst, those who are the heirs amongst the ulama. So I thought, trying to understand this, I remembered what this one sheikh said. And I thought, subhanAllah, maybe this is what Imam Ghazali was alluding to. That those who can bring our hearts back to life and actually inspire us to do good. Actually inspire us to do good. For there are those people. Right? How is it that, like the Sahaba, for example, they went to different places, Malaysia and these types of places, for business, and everyone decided to become Muslim. They went for business. They didn't go to conquer. They didn't really... Dawah wasn't their main purpose. They went to trade. And people were so astonished by them that these are such amazing people. They came up and said, I want to be like you. How can I become like you? So they said, believe in La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. And they gave them the, the, the pillars of Islam. So I think this is... In my opinion, this is, I think, what Imam Ghazali is alluding to. And he says that their rank is determined by the difficulty of assessing their knowledge and their ability to, to guide people. So how do we 
determine, like, because sometimes we have access to the ulama, right? But I think this means access to the, their knowledge. You know, there has, like, for example, there's Mufti Abdul Mujib. He's the Imam in Masjid Umar al-Farooq in Mount Lake Terrace. And for years, I heard that he is such a treasure chest of knowledge. We can't really understand what that means unless we go and we start studying, actually. Right? Like when we would finish, right? we did a, I did a six-year course in South Africa, okay? And our teachers told us at the end that now you are students of knowledge. Don't think you're scholars yet. Six years, you think you became a scholar in six years? You're a student of knowledge now. Now you have the tools. But what do we do? Well, this person was very religious. He had a beard. He spoke Arabic and everything. Where does that determine your knowledge, right? That's a characteristic of somebody. Okay, right? He prays. Maybe he speaks Arabic. A person's ability to speak Arabic also does not show their knowledge, the level of knowledge, right? It doesn't show their religiosity either. But we, it's difficult to understand knowledge. Like, you know, there's a mountain of knowledge and we haven't even seen the mountain of knowledge. You'd be shocked. You go, for example, like there's, you guys have heard of uh, Fadailul Amal, right? That book, there's a lot of like, um, people say negative things about it, right? But it's because of their own lack of knowledge about it. Um, it's a book about virtues. Right? And the sheikh that wrote it, Sheikh Allama Zakaria Kandelawi, rahimullah, he was an Indian sheikh. Okay? He wrote this book. People hate on it and they think that he's just some, like, some quack who didn't know what he was talking about. You look at Muwatta Imam Malik. Right? Imam Malik, rahimullah, everyone's heard his name? Imam Malik, one of the, right, start, the founder of the Maliki Madhab. Right? He, he, he codified the school of Medina Munawara. He wrote a book called Muwatta. It's a hadith book. Right? It's like this thin. Okay? It's this thin. I have a thicker one because I have commentary around it. But it's like this thin. Okay? This sheikh who wrote Fadalul Amal, he wrote a commentary on this book. It's this thin. The commentary is like 20 volumes. It takes up a whole shelf. And you think, what the heck is he talking about? There's another tafsir, Ruhul Ma'ani, right? written by Alama Alusi. Surah Fatiha is seven verses. Did I discuss this here? I tell you guys. Seven verses, Surah Fatiha. He wrote a tafsir on it, 135 pages just on Surah Fatiha. This is knowledge, right? So the ulama, they're, uh, they're, when we look at their, what does Imam Ghazali mean by determining the difficulty of assessing them? It's the difficulty in assessing their knowledge. And then their ability to guide people because there's also some people who have a great amount of knowledge but they don't have the ability to guide people. They're not, you know, a people person as, as we say, right? They don't have that ability. And so he says that we have to uh, attach ourselves to the Aziz, right? For the Prophet ﷺ, he said, Allahumma inni a'udhu bi izzatik. He made a dua that he said, Oh Allah, I seek refuge in you. I seek refuge in your izza, in your might, in your eminency. Alladhi la ilaha illa ant. The one who there is no deity except for you. Alladhi. Alladhi yamutu wal jinnu. Sorry. Alladhi la yamutu. The one who there is no, the one who does not die. Well, jinnu wal insu yamutun. Whereas the jinn and humankind dies. So he sought refuge in the izz of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is that we have to attach ourselves with all with the izz of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And what is the izz of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? How do we attach ourselves with that? Through iman. Right? Because as we mentioned earlier, that Indeed, uh, Izzah belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and to His Messenger and to the believers. But this means we have to act like Muslims too, right? So it is through our Iman and we act like Muslims also. 
right? Then when you, when you go around, I mean, subhanAllah, you know, I traveled with one of my teachers. He's like, you know, in his 60s, okay? He wears like, uh, not a full-on thobe, right? But it's like halfway down his shin, okay? He wears a turban. He's got a white beard. And non-Muslims come up to him and they say like, this is the most beautiful person I've ever seen. How can I be like you? He's converted people based on this. They just come up and they're like, I've never, I don't know what it is, but I've never seen someone like you before. Right? Whereas we see people walking around in turbans. We see people dressed in the sunnah. But when they see this individual, all of a sudden they just want to become Muslim. Like he hasn't even spoken to them and they come up and they say, I want to, I want to be like you. How, do I, how can I become like you? Because they've acted like a Muslim and they've attached themselves with the izz of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Like that's where we have to strive. Right? So that when we just walk the streets, people want to be like us. But when we walk the streets, people are like, you know, they don't, they don't want to be like us. Because as Muslims, we're not acting the way we should be. Right? And some of us, we get on our, our religious high horse and we think that, oh, I'm, I, I am playing the part outwardly, but our character is like horrid. Right? Every aspect, a Muslim strives in every aspect for perfection. That means your school, your work, your iman, your amal, everything. We strive for perfection. And if we do that, then we can attach ourselves with the izza of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and He'll give us that honor. Right? For Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and we'll get into this later, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who, right? Tu'izzu man tasha, right? He is the one who gives honor to whoever He wishes. Right? Any questions? Yes, no? I tried to keep it within the time. <clears throat> we have to go a little bit. Like, we can't go into as much detail, otherwise we're never going to finish. I start talking too much and go on tangents. But Imam Ghazali also, there's some names that he brings together because there's similarity and it's easier to explain them when explained together. And some names he brings together because they seem to be um, so far opposite that it's easier to explain them when you bring them together. So some names he'll do uh, together. Next week is Thanksgiving, right? So no school on Thursday. So inshallah the week after we'll continue. Um, what do you guys think if we bring a guest speaker? Huh? There's, there's somebody that's, that's coming to Seattle and I'm trying to get him to come and do this class. He probably wouldn't talk about like one of the names, but something like along the theme of Imam Ghazali rahimullah. We'll see. Inshallah. Our, our teachers used to tell us that you know it depends on your talab. It depends on your desire for it. If you have the talab for it, then Allah Ta'ala will make it easy for you. Ya Allah, forgive us for our sins. Ya Allah, we have wronged ourselves. Ya Allah, we have wronged ourselves and those around us. Ya Allah, forgive us of our sins, our major sins, our minor sins, those that we committed publicly and privately in the day and in the night. Those that we have forgot we committed, Ya Allah, those that we did intentionally and unintentionally, Ya Allah, those we don't even realize we committed, forgive us for all of our sins, Ya Allah. For Ya Allah, your mercy, your rahmah, and your forgiveness is much greater than our 
wrongdoing, Ya Allah. Ya Allah, you forgive us of our sins. Ya Allah, put the love of Rasulullah and the love of you in our hearts, Ya Allah. Grant us the tawfiq to make amal, Ya Allah. Ya Allah, you open the path of, uh, of hidayah, of guidance for us, and grant us the tawfiq to walk on that path, Ya Allah. Ya Allah, make us living, living our Islam easy for us. Let us be people who please you, Ya Allah, and please Rasulullah and live according to the sunnah of Rasulullah Ya Allah, all those that are suffering around the world, Ya Allah, remove their suffering. Ya Allah, bring Sakina back into this world. Ya Allah, bring tranquility back into this world. Ya Allah, all those that are suffering in various places around the world, be it Syria, be it France, Ya Allah, be it America or anywhere else, remove their suffering, remove their difficulties, Ya Allah. Let us let us be those Muslims who guide the people and guide this whole dunya, Ya Allah. Ya Allah, grant us pious spouses, grant us pious children, Ya Allah. Make us pious, Ya Allah. And make us beacons of shining light and guidance for this dunya and for this country and for this whole ummah, Ya Allah. Ya Allah, allow us to live a life that is pleasing to you. Grant us a death that is pleasing to you. And let it, and raise us on Yawm Al-Qiyamah with those that have pleased you, Ya Allah. Ya Allah, all those that are suffering and sick around the world, remove their sicknesses from them. And grant all those who have any pure needs, Ya Allah. Ya Allah, grant them the, those needs, Ya Allah. Ya Allah, grant, grant us a place under your perfect and supreme shade on Yawmul Qiyamah, Ya Allah. Ya Allah, let us drink from the hands of our beloved Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and the Hawd al-Gawthir which you have promised him. Ya Allah, grant us a swift passage across the Sirat into Jannah, Ya Allah. Grant us the highest stages of Jannah, Ya Allah, without any hisab. Allahumma hasibna hisaban yasira. Allahumma hasibna hisaban yasira. Allahumma hasibna hisaban yasira. Allahumma 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 aghnina bil ilm wa zayyinna bil hilm wa akrimna bil taqwa wa jammilna bil afiyah Allahumma ufir ummata Muhammadin sallallahu alayhi wa sallam Allahumma arham ummata Muhammadin sallallahu alayhi wa sallam Allahumma aslih ummata Muhammadin sallallahu alayhi wa sallam Allahumma ahdi ummata Muhammadin sallallahu alayhi wa sallam Allahumma farraj al-qurba an ummati Muhammadin sallallahu alayhi wa sallam Allahumma inna nas'aluka min khayri ma as'alaka minhu nabiyuka Muhammadin sallallahu alayhi wa sallam wa na'udhu bika min sharri ma sta'adha minhu nabiyuka Muhammadin sallallahu alayhi wa sallam wa anta al-musta'an wa alayka al-balaag wa la hawla wa la quwata illa billahi al-aliyya al-azim subhana rabbika rabbil izzati amma yasifoon wa salamun ala al-mursaleen wa alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen